our sins are forgiven because of the cross and because of your son Jesus. And if, Lord, you should mark iniquities, who would stand? And if we would even be able to see, Lord, the roots of the darkness that's in our own hearts, and uh, if, we, if we had to stand before you, Lord, carrying the, the weight of our sins, Lord, we could never approach, and uh, we would be cast into the, the furthest hell, Lord. And, and, uh, and Father, I know that um, for all of eternity, Lord, we'll, we'll never comprehend all that was done for us and the price that was paid for us to be forgiven completely. And, and Lord, every one of us that's here this morning, um, we, we, feel the, uh, we feel the effects, Lord, of our fallen nature. And um, so often, Lord, we carry with us a sense that how could you be pleased with us and, um, and, and that we're unqualified and unworthy. And, but Lord, we, we stand in a better promise. Stand upon the, the promise that Jesus Christ is, is the sufficient um, atonement for all of our sins and that we're in Christ, that when we pray, if you turn your head to hear our prayer, you see your son, Lord, because the voice is coming out from inside of him. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for eternal life. We thank you for grace. We thank you, Lord, that you set us free from the law of sin and death. And as your sons, Lord, uh, living in this day and uh, being who we are, Lord, we present ourselves to you this morning. We ask you to wash us off, Lord, that you'd cleanse our mind, our heart, our hands, that you would uh, go go over our whole week coming up to this point, Lord, and you just cleanse it, push it away, Lord. And, and Father, we pray for a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit. You said to ask that you might be filled, and we ask that you would fill us, Lord. Your word speaks of times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give, give to each one of us a personal revival, a sense of your presence and nearness and the living water. And Lord, where the, where the hose has been kinked or the well stopped, Lord, we ask that right now, just by grace, you would remove those kinks and stops and that you would let the living water flow. And that, Lord, we would just be immersed in your goodness and your presence and your love um, in your word this morning. And so, Lord, we uh, commit ourselves to you afresh. We, we, we put each thing that's in our lives before you, Lord, every concern. And, and we ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, bless and fix and help in those things, that you'd continue to grow us. And we thank you, Father, for the promise that we have. So take, uh, take our lives, and, and Lord, we commit to you the things that we'll hear this morning in the life of your servant Abraham. We pray that you'd bring them to life for us. You'd bring them into uh, the modern world and bring them into the context of our experiences that we might uh, gain and profit, Lord, from what you've spoken. So help us, Lord, speak personally to each one of us this morning and take up our cause. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis 21. And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah, as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time 
of which God had spoken unto him. In the last chapter, we saw Abraham remove his family and his tent stakes from the place that God had implanted in the land of Hebron and Mamre, which was the will of God for his life, and by the way, where he will return. And he left from there, um, we don't know why, and he went south to the land of the Philistines into a region called Gerar, where he got into some trouble. He fell into some old ways. He was dishonest with the people and with the government that was there. And he bore the consequences of that uh, in the shame that that brought upon him. He did that after God had visited him and said that he was within a year of the fulfilling of the promise that he'd been waiting uh, almost a quarter of a century now to have fulfilled. And what encourages me is that God didn't change his mind because of Abraham's uh, lapse or because of his sin or dishonesty or the reproach that he brought upon his name. God didn't uh, tell Abraham that he was no longer worthy and that he couldn't uh, have the promise that, that was given to him. God's word will be fulfilled because it's God's word. And that's exactly what we see in these first two verses of chapter 21. It says three times in two verses that the promise was fulfilled according to the word of God and according to the promise that God had spoken. And so God kept the promise that he had made to Abraham even though there was a 25-year gap of time between the promise and the fulfilling of the promise. God keeps his word. In Psalm uh, chapter, I think it's 138 verse 2, The psalmist says of God, it says that you have magnified your word above your name. Now, the name of a person or an individual is always uh, a symbol of their reputation. We talk about it in our lives as we, as, as the, that he has a good name, and that means that that person has integrity. It means that they stand behind what they say, that there is uh, substance behind the profession or the promise that that person makes. And so uh, a person's name uh, speaks of their reputation, and then their reputation speaks of their character or their nature. And so when you now bring that into the realm of the divine, and you're talking about God in the name of God, God's name uh, speaks of his reputation, and it speaks of his character. And so in the Bible, we are given the names of God, and they, they are vast. You know, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, God calls himself by a whole host of things. And every time he would does it, with intention describing his character, who he is. So God our provider, or God our healer, or God our shepherd, or God the all-sufficient one, or God the great I am, or God our savior. You know, and the names just go on and on and on and on every time uh, God claiming through his name who he is. But the psalmist says that God esteems his word even above his name. Meaning that if God has spoken something, that he holds that even to a higher standard than he does his own reputation. What does that mean? It means that God's reputation hangs upon the fulfilling of his word and that he holds that in the highest place. Well, we're supposed to, but we don't. (laughs) But he does. (laughs) And so God's word is always going to come to pass. 
Not one word of anything that God speaks will ever fail. And what that makes for us is it makes the Bible the most precious <laughs> of all things that we could ever have because God's word and God's promise to us is never going to fail. It is always going to come to pass no matter what because he's attached the strength of his reputation to his word. Oftentimes when we consider and think about prayer, and prayer is something that um, you know all of us should be uh, uh, familiar with and practicing and a part a regular part of our experience one of the words that the bible uses when it talks about prayer is the word supplication one of the greatest promises in the bible is philippians 4 6 and 7 where it says uh, be anxious for nothing but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving Let your requests be made known unto God. And then there's a promise attached to it in verse 7, and it says, And the peace of God that passes understanding will keep and guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when we take the things that we're anxious about or careful about, and we commit them to prayer with supplication and thanksgiving, God promises that on the other side of that, even though maybe we don't see the answer to our prayer yet, at least we'll have a peace knowing that he has heard and believing that he is moving in those things. Now you say, okay, what does that have to do with supplication or Genesis 21 verses 1 and 2? Do you know what supplication literally means? It means to entreat or petition. In other words, it means to make your case before God. Now we all know what it's like to make our case. How many of us Uh, have ever had an argument with someone when you're by yourself? You ever done that? (laughs) I'm good by myself, too. I clam right up when I'm in the presence of the person. But, (laughs) But I'm real good when I'm on my own. Or have you ever had an argument against someone that you've communicated with someone else? So you talk to your wife about someone at work or you talk to someone at work about your wife. You know, it kind of goes both ways and, you know, or whatever, you know. And, and we, we make a case against somebody and we, 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 we step by step present our cause and why we're either right or why they're wrong. Okay, what we're doing in that is that we're supplicating. If you were to go before a judge... And, you know, plead, you were going to plead your innocence. You would be supplicating. Or if you were going to go before an authority to try to get something done, maybe a building permit or, uh, you know, something. And, 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 and you know that maybe they don't want to give it to you, but you're going to present your case as to why you think they should. That's what it means to supplicate. And the beautiful thing about it is that what God is saying to us here is he's saying, bring your supplications to me, meaning make your petition and entreat me. Meaning we go to God and we can tell him why we're asking for what we're asking for. And he has no problem with that at all. He wants us to make our case before him. We're to supplicate before the Lord. Now, the best way to do that, and I'm going to give you a hint to have success in your prayers right now. The best way to do that is when you bring God his word. Because when you bring God his word, it moves his hand. You understand? God, you said, great will be the peace of your children. God, you said that you were concerned about the 120,000 Ninevites that didn't know their right hand from their left hand. That you're the one that looks after children. 
God, you're the one that sent your son into the world to save and redeem sinners. You haven't returned yet, and you're letting this wretchedness go on in this world because of salvation. So, Lord, why won't you save? You said, Lord, that this was your will. You said, Lord, that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If you tell us to be filled and command it so, then will you not back it up by giving your Holy Spirit to those that ask? You said it, Lord. And promise by promise, we bring to God the things that he has said and we ask him according to his word with confidence that he has magnified his word above his name. Not one word will fail. And so we present our case. The last verse in the Song of Solomon and the Song of Solomon is kind of a, an allegory, the bridegroom and the bride. And the bridegroom is Christ, and the bride is the church. It's you and I. And what God says through the allegory to us in the last verse of the book, he says, as your friends hear your voice, cause me to hear it. In other words, the same way that you would go to your friends and present your case, you bring it to God. Oftentimes in a counseling session when someone comes to me and they have issues, My response to them, once they pour out their heart for 20 or 30 minutes and tell me the whole story from beginning to end, my first response is, have you gone to God and said to him what you just said to me? Exactly the way you said it. Uh, (laughs) That's, That's step one. Cause God to hear it the way you just caused me to hear it. As your friends hear your voice, cause me to hear it. God says he wants us to supplicate. God's word will always come to pass. Three times in two verses, God makes it a point by the Holy Spirit to point out to us as he had spoken. Now, there's another side to that as we read on in verse 3 and 4. Notice what it says. It says, And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare unto him, Isaac. Means laughter. The name that God said that Abraham was to give to his son. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as the Lord had commanded him. So what we see in response to God now fulfilling his word to Abraham, we see Abraham, and mark it, walking in obedience to God. God gave Abraham two commandments. He told him he was to name his son Isaac, that that would be his name. And he commanded him, years ago at this point, when Ishmael was born, that he was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so we see Abraham not just obtaining promises from God, but also reciprocating with obedience in his life. And that's so important for you and I to understand if we're to have success in our prayers and we're to see the word of God and the promise of God fulfilled within our lives. He doesn't ask of us perfection. He knows that we're not perfect. Psalm 103, it says that he considers our frame. He knows that we're just dust. We read in Romans about even Paul's struggle. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. We know that as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to groan. Like it says in Romans chapter 5, we're going to groan, waiting until the sinful nature is removed from us. God knows what we are. But what he asks of us is that to the best of our capacity and ability that we position our lives according to obedience to his word. When you read John chapter 14, 15, and 16, which is all red letters, it's Jesus giving the promise of the coming Holy Spirit and all that the Spirit will do within our lives. 
He says over and over again in those three chapters, ask and it will be given to you. He says, whatsoever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. He says it over and over again. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy might be full. But in every injunction to ask, he attaches it to obedience. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and me and the Father will make ourselves known. And so we're, we're not just to supplicate and ask God to fulfill his word within our lives, but then in our own lives, walk in our own way and not position ourselves obediently to what he wants. We're to do our very best to walk in his ways. And that's what he asks of us. Not because he wants to lay a snare upon us, because he knows that that's where we're going to be safe and it's where we're going to be the best led. It facilitates his leading when we walk within obedience to him. And so it's important that we take the things in our lives, think about right now the thing that burdens you the most. And every, every one of us always has a thing that burdens us the most. It's not always the same thing. It can change daily or several times in a day sometimes. But think about the thing that burdens you the most right now. What does God say that you're to do in the midst of that situation? You're in a marriage where you're having a hard time with your wife. You're having a hard time loving your wife. What does God say? He says, love your wife like Christ loved the church. So today, walk in obedience to that command. Find a way to do that, to practically obey. You're struggling maybe with an addiction or with a habit or with a desire for something that you know you're not supposed to have. So what does God say? He says, lay that at my feet at the foot of the cross. Plead the blood of Jesus Christ and ask for, bro- for a broken chain that those things would, and just walk through today in obedience to my word and lay it at the foot of the cross. Whatever it is that you struggle with right now, walk in obedience to that and wait upon the Lord as he moves to bring it to pass. Abraham walked in obedience. And notice verse 5, it says this, and this just qualifies the whole thing. Watch this. It says, And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And why does he say that here? Because we already knew it. He didn't have to say that. We already knew he was 99 when he received the promise and that it would be a year until the son was born. So why, why does it say it again? Is it redundant here? Here's why. Because it was absolutely impractical and scientifically impossible that Abraham at this point would have a son. It says that he was past the age. He was as good as dead, it says in Romans chapter 4. Sarah had already gone through menopause. She said it out of her own mouth. Scientific law made it impossible for this to happen. But do you know why it happened? Because the word of God said it would. One of the greatest things I ever heard someone say, it has been burned into my soul, and I pray it be burned into yours, is this, is that God will supersede natural law and human government when the name of Jesus is held before his throne. Nothing restrains God from doing what he said that he will do. And so even though Abraham was 100, past hope in the natural realm, there was promise in the spiritual. And so God fulfilled it. Now what was the result of the obtaining of this promise? It says in verse 6, it says, And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. So the laughter of Sarah has been transformed from cynicism and sarcasm and doubt to now rejoicing in the fulfillment of the promise. And so there is rejoicing at the fulfilled promise of God. And she said, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck or nursed children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you know who would have said that to him? God. 
<laughs> and sometimes the things that God says to us, only God can say to us. The promises that he gives. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. So there was rejoicing in the obtaining of the promise. That's the result. And that will always be the result in our lives of letting the word of God dictate our prayers, govern our obedience, and as we obtain the promise and life that God gives, there's always going to be rejoicing when we see the impossible done within our lives. Sometimes I just sit back when, in times when I'm just giving thanks to God. And that's a great thing to do, by the way, frequently, is just, just begin to thank God for everything in your life. And begin to reflect upon where you are today versus where you would be had God never taken, taken up a place within your life. And you just can begin all of a sudden to realize how impossible it is that you could be as blessed as you are. It's, it's amazing what God does. But there isn't just rejoicing. There's also a little bit of pain. Verse 9. It says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which had been born unto Abraham, and she was mocking. And so uh, rejoicing is now ruined by the problem that Sarah herself produced. Notice, first of all, who it is uh, that is mocking Isaac. It says, The son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Uh, and if you just look ahead in verse 10 for just a moment, it says, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Now, here, here's what you've got to see in this, because there's a fulfillment in this too. And here's the fulfillment. It's that, that the works of our effort and ability in trying to help God out will never succeed. Do you remember what Sarah said to Abraham when, when, they, when they birthed this child, Ishmael? Remember what she said? She said, God has withheld me from bearing. Maybe it is that God, listen, wants me to obtain a son by her. Whose son was it supposed to be? It, it was supposed to be Sarah's, right? Sarah, right? By me. In other words, she was birthed upon the knees, right? And she was a surrogate. Hagar was to be a surrogate and Ishmael was to belong to her because Hagar was Sarah's bondmaid, bondservant. Didn't work. Not only did God not recognize Ishmael as the son of Abraham and Sarah, in the next chapter, we're going to see that God didn't even recognize Ishmael as the son of Abraham, spiritually. But Sarah didn't even recognize Ishmael as her own son. She says, cast out this bondwoman and her son. Listen, let it be a warning to each one of us. Our attempt to try to help God fulfill his plan will never work. Not even for us. It won't work because God won't bless it. And even for us, it will fall short. And Sarah had a thorn in her side for 15 years because of her attempt to try to help God out the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael. Notice that it tells us there also that Ishmael was mocking Isaac on the day that he was weaned. So how old is this child? I mean, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that Isaac was nursed uh, a little bit longer than we nurse our babies. It was typical in those days that you would um, not really fully be weaned until maybe you were three or four years old. We see that today, and from now on, time to time we see that, and it freaks us out, right? <laughs> a little bit. 
<laughs> that child's just a little bit too old to be where he is right now. You know, we, <laughs> we say, you know, <laughs> I'd be jealous as a husband, honestly, you know. <laughs> Um, the age difference is about 15 years. Yeah, 15 years. So, uh, so Ishmael's about 15. He's a teenager at this point. And Isaac is just being weaned. So he's, you know, a few years old at this point. And so this teenager is now mocking Isaac. And we don't know why. It doesn't tell us what he exactly was mocking or what he saw or what it was. But it's an interesting thing um, that we see take place here, and then we see the response to it. Notice what it says in uh, verse 10 again, where it says that Sarah says now to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And it says that the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. So Abraham loved Ishmael, Sarah had nothing for him, and now Sarah says, get him out, and Abraham is in a bind. And so it says that God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of your bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so God says, in this thing, Sarah has it right. She didn't have it right last time. But this time she does have it right in that he is to be cast out. And now this comes directly from God. Now, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament book of Galatians takes these verses and he takes this situation that really took place in Abraham's life. And he tells us that God was creating in this an allegory. That there was a picture that God was seeking to communicate throughout the ages through the lives of these two young men. And so Paul tells us this. He says that Ishmael was the son of the flesh or the fruit of our efforts or our attempt to try to fulfill the word of God or the salvation of God through our work. And he says that Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac had nothing to do with Abraham and everything to do with God. And Paul says that these two boys represent two covenants. Ishmael represents the law, Mount Sinai, man's effort to try to please God through his obedience and his work. Isaac represents the new covenant, that which was produced by Christ on the cross, paid in full, completely apart from our works, before we were even born, all of our sin, past, present, and future forgiven before we committed even one of them. A salvation that comes completely by faith in a promise rather than by the effort of our religion. And Paul says that the two things are contrary to each other. They cannot coexist at the same time. And that's what we see taking place right here in the text. We see Ishmael mocking Isaac. The two things do not get along. They are oil and water. You cannot be saved both by your keeping of the law and by your believing in faith. That's the whole reason Paul wrote Galatians. Because the Galatian Christians were trying to be saved by keeping the law. And Paul wrote and he said, you guys are in danger. Because what you're doing is you're mocking the blood of Christ. Your religious attempts to try to be good enough and do good enough are mocking God. And he said, God will not be mocked. 
Paul said in Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if salvation comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. And for you and I to try to please God by our religious works, God, I am coming to you today and I have confidence because I'm good in whatever context we proclaim our own goodness. That's a mockery to God. It's a mockery to the Holy Spirit of God because there is nothing good in us. The Bible says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. The Bible says there is none good, no, not one. Romans 1 paints the picture of us perfectly. It says that the poison of snakes is under our tongues, that our feet are swift to shed blood, that destruction and misery are in our ways and in our paths. That's what we are. That's what we bring. And he has purchased us and forgiven our sins through his work on the cross. And our salvation and righteous standing before God is in nothing of us and everything in him. It's all in Jesus Christ. But those that seek to be justified by the law will always look at those who are justified by promise and mock them. It's always going to happen. You look at someone who's gone to church their whole life and they fulfilled every sacrament and they give of themselves and they never miss a service and, and they can boast in all of their goodness before God. And then you take someone who comes out of a lifestyle of drugs and licentious living and and all the rest. And and that person is saved by grace and they have the joy of the Lord. And they meet up with the person, the aunt, the uncle, the, the, the coworker that is religious, that doesn't miss a service. And, 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 and they say, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And they have a cross maybe hanging around their neck and a Christian t-shirt and a smile on their face. And they say, do you know Jesus to the person who is religious? And they say, do I know Jesus? Of course I know Jesus. I've known Jesus my whole life. I was weaned on Jesus. I've never missed a holy day of obligation or a service or a sacrament. And I've done all these, you know, religious works. Of course I know Jesus. I know Jesus better than you. What have you done? You're a drug addict, you know, whatever, the whole thing. And they don't understand it. And they mock. This person thinks that they can be saved because they just believe in Jesus. Yep, that's right. What's that? Okay. Okay. Can you save now? Yeah. The flesh is always stronger than the spirit. Just as Isaac was weaker than Ishmael. Ishmael was 15 years or 17 years old by the time Isaac was weaned, or 15 by the time he was born. The older is always stronger than the younger. In the Bible, it talks about the flesh and the spirit. Now here is where that allegory goes even deeper. That inside every one of us, both of those things exist. We still have what the Bible calls our old man, which is our flesh, right? And when we're born again, several years after we're born naturally, We're given the Holy Spirit of God and we're born in Christ. But the older entity in us is always the flesh, isn't it? And thus it's always stronger. The tendency is always going to be for the flesh to overpower the spirit. But the Bible says that the older shall serve the younger. Meaning that what's born in us of Christ is of higher priority and precedence 
and rank than that which is stronger, which is oftentimes the flesh. Every time that this is depicted in the scripture, we see it that way. The flesh is stronger naturally, but the spirit takes preeminence. And so what do we do with that? Because we all feel it, don't we? This war that exists within us between our flesh, which wants to live after its own way, and the spirit, which calls us and bids us to obedience and a life of uh, following after God and holiness. How do we reconcile that conflict that exists between us, the fact that Ishmael and Isaac both live within the person who's born again? Well, read on in the allegory, back in Genesis chapter 21. Look at verse 14. It says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and so quick to obey. And it says that he took bread and a bottle of water, and he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and he sent her away, and she departed, and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went, and she sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot, for she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him, a, 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 you know, a bow shot away, and she lifted up her voice and wept. She didn't want to see what she thought was going to be the sure death of the child. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the boy drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness, and he became an archer, and he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Notice that God didn't kill the lad. Don't you wish sometimes that God would just kill your flesh? Don't you wish that he would just annihilate it completely? (laughs) that it would just not be a factor anymore. It won't be one day when we get to heaven. We'll be separated from this body and the sins of it, Lord. Oh, God, we can't wait for that day, you know, when, when that freedom comes to us. But in the meantime, this body lives, doesn't it? And the flesh and the spirit live side by side. So how do we deal with it? How did Abraham deal with it? Did you notice what, what Abram gave to Hagar and her son when he was cast out? A little bit of bread and a little bit of water. Enough to survive until he couldn't see it anymore. And then that was it. Now, Abram was exceedingly rich. He could have said, you know what? You're not going to be the heir with Isaac, but I'll at least give you a small flock and give you something to get going, a small inheritance, a little bit of food, enough money to buy yourself a house wherever it is that you end up lodging far away from here. He doesn't do it. And he doesn't do it on purpose. It's by the direction of God. Why? Here's why. Because the Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Do you realize that if you, in you, you have both the flesh and the spirit living inside of you, that the the one that you feed is going to be stronger than the other one? And if you feed your flesh and give yourself to the flesh and let the flesh have an inheritance with you, then your flesh is going to be strong and it's going to dominate. But if you feed your spirit and leave your flesh off, Neglect your flesh, set it aside, bring it to the foot of the cross, and let Christ nail it to the cross there, then the Spirit will dominate over the flesh. And that's the battle that each one of us has every day in this life. It's the battle of who am I going to feed? Am I going to give myself to the things of the flesh? 
or am I going to give myself to the things of the Spirit? Both live side by side as long as we're on this planet. But we have the power to give the inheritance to one or to the other, and we're called by God to give it to the promise, not to our flesh. And so uh, God allows these two to live side by side. Ishmael became the father of a chunk of, not all of, but a chunk of the Arab, Arab peoples, the people that, uh, for the most part, dwell in the south, southern portion of the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, uh, those countries that are down in there. Those descendants are still on the, the planet even to this day, and certainly they have been a thorn in the side of the children of Abraham ever since, side by side, the seed of Abraham and the seed of Ishmael still alive, same as it is inside of us. Read Galatians and pick up the, uh, the rest of the allegory and how it applies to our, our walk uh, with him. And so, um, lost my page. Verse 22, it says that it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, said unto Abram. So Abraham is still living in Gerar, in that southern region saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear unto me hereby God that you will not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto you, you shall do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Okay, so what we have now is we have this this King Gerar and, and his uh chief general, this man named Phicol, and they come to Abraham and they talk to him about the, a, a covenant that they want to make with him. They say, listen, we want you to make a promise that you're going to not burn us and that you're not going to rip us off and, and that in the future there's going to be peace between us. And the reason why he wants to make this covenant with Abraham is because he says, God is with you. That's what he recognized and saw. Now, the amazing thing about it is that Phicol and Abimelech are stronger than Abraham. We're going to see that in just a minute because Abraham is going to come back and say, hey, your servants stole a well from me. They're more powerful than I am. And there's nothing that I can do about it. I dug the well and they took it and I'm defenseless against them. So Abimelech, Phicol are stronger than Abraham. But here's what they recognize. They recognize God is with you. And if God is with you, then we can't overcome you even if we're stronger than you. And that's important to understand because you say, you know, my spirit, it seems so weak and my flesh, it seems so strong and my flesh steals things from my spirit all the time. And what am I to do about it? Listen, God is with you. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That is your flesh. Therefore, the spirit will reign supreme at the last. And these pagan kings are afraid of Abraham because they see that God is with them. And they want to be on the right side of that because they know that in the end they can't overcome it. And so they seek a covenant and they say, look, we might be able to squash you, but we know that in future generations (laughs) it's not so going to be. So make a covenant with us. And Abraham agrees to it. And so Abraham reproved then Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I knew not who had done this thing, neither did you tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. I didn't know this happened. And so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech said unto Abraham, 
What mean these seven ewe lambs which you have set up by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shall you take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Abraham, in other words, saying, like, listen, I'm willing to put money on the line, show you that, that I, I, uh, I'm the one who owns and, and who dug this well. And so wherefore, he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. It means the well of the oath, or well of the covenant. The flesh is always trying to stop up our well, isn't it? What did Jesus say? Jesus said on that great day of the feast, he said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly will flow torrents of living water. And it says, This spake he of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There is a well that springs up from the deepest part of what we are. It's the well of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's a well that belongs to us. It's a promise that we're entitled to, to ask of God that that well ever be flowing and that the flow becomes stronger and stronger day by day within our life. But isn't it the sneaky flesh, the enemy, the traitor that lives within us that's constantly doing things to steal that well, to quench it, to stop it up, promising us water that doesn't really satisfy, contrary to the water that God gives And in the indulging of that water, we see the waters of God just shut down. In Jeremiah, God spoke through the prophet and he said this. He said, my people have committed two evils. He said, number one is that they have forsaken me, the fountain or the well of living water. And number two, they've hewn themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God paints this picture before us of these two water sources. One is a well that springs up constantly, that satisfies, that never stops. And the other one is of a cistern that must be filled temporarily, but that leaks and can't hold water. And when you go to draw from it, after it has promised you something, it can produce nothing. God says, you're missing out on life because you're seeking to find water in the wrong source. And so Abraham takes back the well that was taken from him, and he does it with a lamb. He brings a lamb, and he, bring, he, he gains back the water that was rightfully his. And then notice his response to the whole thing, taking it in. It says, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abraham rose up his host, and they returned unto the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, where the well is, And notice what he calls it. He called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. First time in the Bible that that name is given or ascribed to God. It's El Olam or God, the everlasting God. This is one of my favorite names that God gives himself or that's ascribed to God within the Bible. The everlasting God. L-E-L-Olam, O-L-A-M. It's God, the everlasting God. And you know why Abraham calls God the everlasting God here? In the context of this, by this well, this place called the the oath at the well, Beersheba. You know why? Because God is the well that is everlasting. It never, ever, ever runs dry. There's a verse in the Psalms where David said, talking about this life and all the pursuits of this life and all the joys and experiences of this life, he says this. He says, there is nothing lasting. And that's true. 
There is nothing in this life or in this world that can satisfy or that can last. All of it will eventually perish. Every experience, every pleasure, every possession, every acquisition, every position, everything that we could ever have ultimately will expire within this world. There is nothing lasting. But there is something that is everlasting. One thing. And that is God. And he has given to us an eternal or everlasting soul that has the capacity to experience an everlasting God. And so wisdom says that no matter how weak my spirit might feel or how strong my flesh might seem, it's in my best interest to live for the spirit and not for the flesh. Did you know that the only thing in existence that has an unlimited capacity is a human soul. If you have a bucket or a bag or a cistern or a riverbed, it can hold so much and then it begins to overflow. It can't hold anymore. It has a limited capacity. But the human soul has an unlimited capacity. As much as you fill it, it can take that much more and it will stretch eternally to have in it whatever is put in it. That's why people are never satisfied because people give themselves to something and it fills them and satisfies them, but it only fills them and satisfies them for so long because the soul stretches out. So they they drink alcohol for the first time and they go, yes, this is life, but it doesn't satisfy because the soul stretches out. People get into relationships or experiences or they gain money and those things satisfy for a season. It fills but it can't lastingly fill because the soul stretches out. It has an unlimited capacity. That's why Solomon, who had as much money, as much women, as much wine, as much laughter, as much pleasure as he could ever want, still came to the end of it all, and he said, it's empty. There's nothing in it. Because the human soul was made to have an unlimited capacity. And did you know that there's only one thing in all of eternity that has an unlimited source? It's God. We were made to be in a relationship with God. That's what we're made for. And man will never ultimately find his satisfaction until he finds it in God alone. Because he's the only one that has the ability to fill an everlasting capacity. And he does. And Abraham realizes that as he takes in this whole scene. The birth of Ishmael. I mean Isaac. And the casting out of Ishmael, the flesh. The strength of Gerar and Phicol versus the covenant of the Lamb and the well and the everlasting God. May he become for us, not just in our mind as we understand what the page says, but in our heart as we comprehend who he is, the everlasting God. Father, we just thank you this morning, Lord, as we consider these things and look at this segment of what you were teaching Abraham and teaching us. And we would pray, Lord Jesus, that you would become for us the everlasting well. That though, Lord, there be wells of water that have been taken from us by our own flesh, the thing that is stronger, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would rise up within us and that promise would take it back the blood of the lamb would remove that which quenches 
and that you would return us, Lord, to our first love and to the source of life that's found only in you. May your word, your Holy Spirit, prayer, fellowship with you, an enduring walk in your presence, may those things drive and govern our life, that we would put the world behind us, keep the cross before us, and that we would pursue you, Lord, for whom all life, to whom all life leads and for whom all things are worthy. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning to please fill us afresh with you, to set our eyes upon you, Lord, that we might know the life that you, you intend for us to have. So we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.